Huckabee, Lila Rose exposes Planned Parenthood, Chris Hogan's 2019 financial wisdom, and James Burton and Terry Blackwood celebrate Elvis. That's Trey Corley at the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Filbury. And now, here's Mike Huckabee! Our audience has come alive. Now, welcome to our very first show of 2019. And I hope you had a great Christmas with your family and your friends. Now, we've got some special guests tonight that are going to help us celebrate the life of Elvis Presley, who would have turned 83 years old this coming week on January 8th. It's kind of hard for me to believe that he died 41 years ago. But his impact on music and culture continues. One of our guests tonight is James Burton, one of the most accomplished guitar players of all time. Now, I would say one of the most copied, but very few guitar players can get close to actually copying his legendary style of playing. And among his many notable achievements was that he was the lead guitar player for Elvis. So why on earth would I want to focus on the life of Elvis Presley who was an uneducated truck driver born into abject poverty in Tupelo, Mississippi, and spent most of his life in Memphis. I mean, why not talk about all the big political stories of the week, like Nancy Pelosi becoming speaker again? <laughs> That's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> or the government shutdown, or the fight over the border wall, or the crash of the stock market, or the tension with China, or the controversy over pulling out of Syria, or the changes in the president's cabinet. Yeah, those are important stories. But there is a reason I'd rather talk about Elvis. Because... Because when there is much real or imagined racial tension, and when people pretend to be offended by everything and they brand anyone who disagrees with them a racist, it might be helpful to remember that through some of America's real race crises, it wasn't the politicians or the preachers or the corporate leaders who helped bridge racial division in this nation. It was the singers, the comedians, the musicians, and the actors who broke the barriers, built bridges, and helped erase racial tension and bring people together. And no one, no one was more instrumental or effective than Elvis Aaron Presley a rock and roll singer from Memphis who was among the first American artists to incorporate the music from the black community and whose music attracted both black and white audiences. And because of Elvis, many of the nation's gifted black artists got heard on radio and in live appearances by white audiences who loved the music that before had only been heard in black clubs, honky-tonks, and black churches. Much to the chagrin of many parents who would have preferred that their children remain segregated by race, the music of Elvis tore down walls and built bridges through music. And most politicians only acted when it was politically safe to do so. And even then, they did it reluctantly, cautiously, and sometimes cowardly. Many of the preachers and churches of the era were not only missing in action when it came to prophetically calling out the sinfulness of bigotry and racism. But in some sad and tragic instances, they even helped to legitimize prejudice and hate by actually declaring that the Bible advocated segregation. But Elvis played to crowds regardless of their color. And his music touched a nerve deep in his audience that went well beneath the skin color. Some may remember Elvis being vilified for shaking his hips or playing his music too loud or for openly incorporating sounds in his music that up until then was known as race music or black music. Well, the days of Bull Connor fire-hosing black kids in the streets of Birmingham or Orville Fauba standing in the door of Little Rock Central High School to block the entry of nine teenagers wanting a decent education are the brutal and senseless murders of Emmett Till or Medgar Evers in Mississippi, those are long gone. But the music of Elvis continues to entertain, energize, and yes, 
bring people together from very different places and races. And that's why we remember that yes, Elvis did more than the politicians and the preachers to change America's attitude toward race. A series of undercover videos by my next guest exposed what Planned Parenthood is really all about. And let me tell you something, it has nothing to do with women's health. I want you to welcome the president and founder of Live Action and one of America's most influential millennials, pro-life activist, Lila Rose. Lila, it's a delight to see you again and welcome to our show. Uh, I want to get right into this issue of Planned Parenthood. The Republicans promised they would defund Planned Parenthood. Why hasn't mm -hmm. that already been done? I think it's because of total dysfunction in the Republican Party right now and in Congress and a lack of willpower. I think there's a lot of other issues that are bouncing around immigration, taxes, the economy, and they need to make this a priority. I mean, many folks in Congress campaigned on Planned Parenthood, and the president, one of his pledges before taking office was that he would stop the forced taxpayer funding of the biggest abortion chain of Planned Parenthood. For the uninitiated, why does it matter? What is it that Planned Parenthood is doing that, that I should be worried about, that you should be worried about, that the average American taxpayer should care about? The first thing is 900 children a day are killed at Planned Parenthood facilities in this country. 900 little boys and girls who are being killed legally at, at facilities that are propped up with government money. Secondly, this is a scandal-ridden, corrupt, abusive corporation. They are mired in scandal after scandal, alongside this human rights abuse of taking the lives of these innocent children, over 320,000 children a year. Planned Parenthood has been caught sexual, covering up the sexual abuse of young girls, aiding and abetting sex traffickers. We've documented this. They turn a blind eye to sex trafficking and abuse cover-up. Instead, they send little girls after secret abortions back into the arms of their abusers. We've documented case after case after case. They're still doing it, Governor. And then they're also selling baby body parts. And this has been exposed by Center for Medical Progress. I mean, they commit abortions in the late second trimester, children that some are old enough to be, survive outside the womb, and they, they wait to harvest the organs of these children, which is against the law. It's illegal to traffic federally in the body parts of children who are victims of abortion, but that's been documented on tape. They're, they're top ex abortion executives haggling over the prices of the body parts of children killed at Planned Parenthood facilities. And right now, the Department of Justice has an ongoing investigation. And yet we're still funding this abusive corporation with 1.5 million taxpayer dollars every single day. So how many people have been indicted who have been doing these things? Uh, because I've even seen videos, it's not just hearsay, video evidence of people negotiating for the sale of the body parts. So how many have gone to jail? How many indictments? How many are uh, in prison right now? You know the one taking the most heat is the investigative reporter, David Daleiden, and his, his cohort, Sandra Merritt, who are being literally prosecuted criminally in the state of California for their investigative reporting of Planned Parenthood in California by a very pro-abortion attorney general, Xavier Becerra. So, you know, the Department of Justice can get involved here. These are federal crimes that we're talking about. I'm still waiting to see. The, the full prosecution happened. I mean, it's an investigation stage. It's been in that stage since President Trump took office. I mean, it wasn't going to happen under Obama, which is when the, the videos were first released. But it hasn't happened yet. There's not a conviction yet. There's not even prosecution yet. And it needs to happen. And this is one among other illegal activities that Planned Parenthood is involved in. They're not only selling body parts of children, but there is a long history documentation of Planned Parenthood's cover-up of sexual abuse, which violates state laws, laws designed to protect young girls, making Planned Parenthood and other groups like them mandated reporters. But instead of reporting abuse like they're required to do, they take abuse victims, give them secret abortions, send them back into the arms of their abusers. So there's multiple criminal ac actions happening here, and there's been a lack of will and, a, and, quite frankly, support from the Obama administration for eight years. So we're looking to see some action from the Department of Justice under an administration that should be more fair and see 
see the truth for what's happening at Planned Parenthood. What health care for women does Planned Parenthood provide with our taxpayer dollars? One of the biggest scams in American politics and culture today is this idea that Planned Parenthood represents women's health care. The fact is Planned Parenthood's health services, as they claim, so handing out hormonal contraceptives, STI testing, supposed cancer screenings, have been declining over the last 10 years, nearly all their services. Some services that they claim to provide, like mammograms and prenatal care, don't even exist. They're lying about them or they're, they're negligible. What Planned Parenthood has been increasing in their services, their services over the last 10 years, is abortion. Their abortion numbers have increased. Their share of the U.S. abortion market has increased. And their other services, many of them are negligible, have decreased. The fact is, they are focused on abortion at all costs, no matter what. That's their cash cow. That's their ideology. And they're, they're masking it in this language of women's health care. It's not even holistic health care. This language of, of women's health care in order to win public support. And they've been successful so far, to the tune of over half a billion dollars every single year. It's really shocking. And I think uh, you've done a great job, as has Live Action for several years, of exposing the horrors uh, that have been done at the hands of Planned Parenthood. Lila, thank you very much for being with us. It is a delight to see you again. Great to see you, too. Thanks, Governor. We all owe a huge debt to Lila Rose for bravely speaking up to protect unborn children. I want to remind you about the March for Life in Washington, D.C. It's January the 18th, and you can learn more at marchforlife.org. Now, to follow Lila Rose on Twitter and Facebook, look for at Lila Grace Rose and visit Live Action online at liveaction.org. That's liveaction.org. All right, Keith, it's time for you to take some action of your own. Why don't you tell us what's coming up next? Well, just ahead, we've got financial expert Chris Hogan to share dollars and common sense. Later, Frank breaks down top news stories on facts of the matter. And Elvis Presley's guitarist James Burton and Terry Blackwood are here for a great tribute to the king of rock and roll. And welcome back. Now, you know my next guest is one of Dave Ramsey's longtime financial experts. He's also a number one best-selling author and host of The Chris Hogan Show. His brand new book is called Everyday Millionaires, How Ordinary People Built Extraordinary Wealth and How You Can Too, which is what you're interested in. I know it is. Please welcome Chris Hogan. Chris. Thank you, my friend. Great thank having you, you here. Thank you, thank you. <clears throat> Most people think millionaires are people who inherited all their money, and they think, I can never have that kind of net worth. No, you're absolutely right. And, and they, if you believe that myth, then if you don't stand to get an inheritance, you don't think it's available to you. So we talked to over 10,000 millionaires around the country. 10,000? 10, 10,000. Didn't know there were that many. That's, there's a whole <laughs> lot of them out there. But here's the truth. People yeah. believe that wealthy people inherited all their money. The truth is only 21% of the millionaires that we talked to received an inheritance. Really? Only 21%, only 16% inherited 100,000 or more. So what that means is a vast majority of people built wealth on their own. They're regular men and women that are working hard. So what you're saying is, is that this is not something that is out of reach for just a typical American uh, who, who would like to be able to do better in life than maybe his or her parents. That's right. Well, there are over 800 script, uh, scriptures about money, right, in the Bible. And so that tells us something, that money can be one of those things that can trip us up if we're not aware of it. Number one, the Lord owns it, right? I'm not yeah. confused. My job is to be a good steward and a manager of it. But it does allow me to be able to help people. Broke people can't help people. They're That's not able point. to help. Yeah. And so looking at this, the mindset is not, not looking at it as a, as a God or as something to, to, that you want to uh, uh, worship, but it's something to use as a tool that allows us to take care of our family, but to also support other people in communities around the country. I'm watching some of these people in the audience. They're licking their lips. They say, okay, great. Now tell me how I can do it. <laughs> so, but are there some steps? If, if a person said, I'd like to start doing better. I want yes. to be a better financial manager of the resources that God has given me. 
what immediate thing should a person do? I think first and foremost is start to believe that you can. You know, we're not the result of our failures, we're the result of our new decisions. Mm. So new year, new you, make some decisions. Learn these skills you need, budgeting, getting yourself out of debt, because when you get out of debt, you give yourself a raise. Learning how to save. Whoa, 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 I love that. Say that again, because that is powerful. Oh, when you get out of debt, you give yourself a raise. Great thought, yeah. yeah. Money's not going to, to the yeah. credit card companies. I almost said one of the names. I'm not gonna get in trouble. <laughs> uh, but imagine, I mean, that money gets to stay with you when it doesn't have to go to other people. Yeah. So you don't have to go talk to your boss about getting a raise or anything. Give yourself a raise by getting out of debt. So if you start to budget, you get yourself out of debt, you're saving and you're investing, those are four things you can start to do right now to put yourself on a better path financially. Do people have to give most of what they earn into a savings account in order to, to have a, a decent kind of plan or can they still enjoy life? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. I tell people once you get out of debt and you give yourself a three to six months emergency fund, uh -huh. I want you to start investing 15% of your income. 15%, that still leaves a whole other amount for you to live on. But I'm glad you asked that because I, people think, well, Chris, you and Dave don't want anybody to have any fun, Yeah. right? You, you don't want us to have no stuff. And I say, no, that's not true. I don't want stuff to have you. Mm. And when you're working hard to pay on debt, that's when stuff has you. So save up, pay cash, enjoy your life, but let's prepare for the future. Social security is not gonna be enough to take care of us. It's just yeah. not, it's gonna be insolvent by 2034. So what we have to do is be prepared and let's take care of ourselves. You know, I, I think it's simple advice, but it, it, it may be so simple that people think it won't work. But well, you, you've seen, you're talking about in this book, people who have used this simple idea that you have discussed, and you're, you've talked over 10,000 of them. That's right. And that's what they've done. That's exactly what they've done. We also found some key attributes from these people. They take personal responsibility, they're intentional with their finances, they're goal-oriented, uh, they're hardworking, and they know that building wealth takes time. Those are five things anybody can do. There's a few stories of in here of people that were homeless at some point. Huh. How do you go from homeless to having a net worth of, of, of over a million dollars? It's by being responsible for yourself, not having a victim mentality, but believing you can do it. And that it's never too early to start planning for That's your right. financial security. And Everyday Millionaires, this book right here, tells you how. You can find the book, as well as Chris's radio show, his tour schedule, and lots of free extras at chrishogan360.com. Also, look for him on all major social media sites at chrishogan360. This is simple, practical, yes, useful advice. Beginning of a new year, great time to start this kind of process. So Keith, hey, you'd make me feel like a million bucks if you just let us know what we've got coming up in the show. I am just here to serve. Coming up next, news that will raise your eyebrows but make you smile. Then America's funniest cop, Dan Whitehurst, performs at a pre-birthday performance to honor Elvis and get you dancing right here on Huckabee. Welcome back. From Frenchman crossing the Atlantic by a floating barrel and a hairdresser who uses swords and torches to give you a trim, we've got the news that will lower your ears and blood pressure on a segment we like to call In Case You Missed It. Well, fans got more than a college football game when the University of Texas and University of Georgia hooked up last week at the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans. The mascots decided to throw down as well. Oh, not the ones in costume either. Take a look at this footage where Bevo, the Longhorns mascot steer, takes a run at Ugga, Georgia's bulldog. Okay, now how smart was it to dress a dog in red and put him in front of a bull? Did anybody think about that? Obviously not. All right, are you tired of the same old trip to your hairdresser, Jacques or Philippe? Well, it might be time for a visit to Madrid, Spain. Hairstylist Alberto Almedo, or Almedo, just made up the greatest way to liven up your look. Ninja swords and blow torches. That's right. I mean, why cut your hair when you can torture and interrogate it? And when he became disillusioned with scissors, he decided to cut them out and continue deeper with swords. Deeper was probably a poor choice of words on my part. Now, he also does haircuts with 
claws that he puts on his hands. Maybe he was the inspiration of Edward Scissor's hands. Almedo says that his precision lasers are the next goal. <laughs> May the force be with his clients. That's all I got to say. I will continue to use my traditional barber. All right, crossing the ocean in a sailboat, you know that can be treacherous. I mean, the wind, the storms. But 71-year-old Jean-Jacques Savin wanted the bigger challenge. So he's crossing the Atlantic in a barrel, and an orange barrel at that. If this catches on, our freeways soon may be depleted of those unsufferable <laughs> and ubiquitous orange barrels, as people will be using them in lakes and rivers as watercraft. Mr. Savitt is the first person ever to venture the Atlantic in one. Imagine that. I thought so many people would have tried this before. But he hopes to complete the journey in three months' time. Being a Frenchman, he does have good Bordeaux wine as well as a bunk, a captain's seat, and a tiny, tiny little kitchen. There's satellite technology for guidance and goose pâté and white wine to celebrate his birthday at sea. In a barrel. In a barrel. You know, he could have just launched out in a wine barrel and drank his way across the Atlantic. That way, he would have gotten pickled or ended up in a pickled barrel. Anyway, Mr. Savin hopes to land on a French Caribbean island to help speed paperwork, medical tests, and his flight back to the southwest of France. Now, you may worry about his adventure, but I'll bet this Frenchman is going to have more fun than a barrel of monkeys. All right, here's a shout out to newly elected Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Forget. <laughs> I don't think she'd get elected in this district here. Yeah, a shout out to her for getting right to business by offering public workers currently off during the shutdown with creative ways to build her own social media following. She says just do things like, one, endorse single-payer health care for all. Number two, hold Wall Street accountable. Three, change the minimum wage. Four, give Puerto Rico debt to the United States and forgive it. Then end private prisons and ICE detention. And then the next one is to approve the Green Deal that Nancy Pelosi shot down. Yeah, or we could just fund border security and be done with the shutdown. That might be quicker, just so you know. And a very quick shout out to CNN for having Nancy Pelosi's daughter on, who revealed this about her mom. And I quote, she said, she'll cut your head off and you won't even know you're bleeding, end quote. I kind of think that might be true. Maybe that's why Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez backed off the new Green Deal that she was demanding when Nancy said no. Well, just like someone who tears a mattress tag off before reading the fine print, we read the news. All right, our next guest has been a police officer. He's been a detective. Somehow, he found his way to the job of professional comedian. And I mean, who doesn't want a lawman with a sense of humor when they're caught speeding? Would you please welcome to the stage the very funny Mr. Dan Whitehurst. Thank you, thank you very much. And just to clear something up, I did not retire from the police department. Uh, I was injured in the line of duty. I, I like to consider myself one of the unsung heroes of police work. What happened, we had an armed robbery right downtown Nashville. Two suspects, according to witnesses, had fled into the parking garage at Second and Commerce. My partner and I, we drive to the top of the parking garage. We're in plain clothes, unmarked car, we turn our walkie-talkies down real quiet, and we're gonna sneak down the stairwell one floor at a time and find these guys. We step into the first stairwell, and I hear my partner go, hey, look at that. And I look over, and hanging upside down from the wall asleep is a little bat. Yeah, just hanging there. I guess they do that. I don't know. And I said, that's pretty cool. And then he said, I bet you won't touch it. <laughs> I bet I will, because I'm a man. 
So now I knew I had touched that bat. So I just gritted my teeth and I reached out like this. And right when my finger made contact with the hair on his back, he came off the wall like this and did a barrel roll and rubbed his belly right across the side of my face. And I screamed and fell down four flights of stairs. <laughs> yep. That ain't the way you want to end your police career right there, I'll just tell you. I'll never forget riding into Baptist Hospital on the back of the ambulance. Paramedics like, what happened to you, young man? Street gang jumped me and beat me with a bat. <laughs> I had to have spinal fusion surgery over that. Yeah, they took part of my pelvis bone out, fused it into my spine. I was in the hospital for seven days. I woke up after the third day and noticed I had a catheter and some sort of tube coming out of my nose. I just remembered waking up in a cold sweat, screaming, is this the same tube? <laughs> You've run it too far. This ain't doing nobody no good. And I know nobody likes police officers all the time. It's hard. Nobody likes them in the rearview mirror. Nobody likes to get a ticket. I understand this. But if you ever get a ticket from a police officer and it makes you angry and you want to get them back, you want me to tell you how you do it? Of course you do. <laughs> Just be nice to them. It sounds crazy, but I speak from experience. 1986, I stopped a lady blue right through a stop sign. I was a rookie patrol officer. She hands me her license. I write her ticket. And when I hand the ticket back to her, she looks at me and she says, I am so sorry. I was not paying attention. I could have hurt somebody. Thank you. Thank you for being out here and doing what you do. <laughs> and I walked back to my car thinking that lady never hurt nobody. <laughs> Fortunately, that doesn't happen a lot. <laughs> but if you're a jerk, they like it. Speak from experience on that too. Given, serving a warrant on a guy. Don't know him from Adam. As we're driving down the road, I hear him say the following. I'm going to beat my face against this screen and tell the judge you beat me up. And I reached up and click, hit record on my pocket tape recorder, and I said, I'm sorry, sir, what did you say? And he repeated it back verbatim. <laughs> Game on, right? <laughs> this is where a more professional officer might have told him, sir, you don't want to do that. You're just going to hurt yourself. But what I heard myself saying was, you just do whatever it is you feel like you need to do. <laughs> and he whacks his head on that screen, boom, hard. And he looks at me, he said, what do you think about that? I said, I've seen better. <laughs> he hits himself seven more times. We get down to night court, I get out of the car, I rewind the tape because I want it to be right on the, where you know, it's supposed to be so the judge doesn't have to wait and he hears his voice and he knows the gig's up, right? So we're standing there, judge signs warrant, hands it back to him and looks at him and says, you got anything to say, young man? He went... He made me whoop myself. <laughs> I strolled out of there like Sarah Sanders after a press conference. <laughs> but you know, I got to thinking, what does the Bible say about vengeance? Come on, this is the Huckabee show, come on. <laughs> vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And I realized that voice, that verse, and I started thinking to myself what I'd done. And I just remember kind of nodding my head and saying, Lord, I know that you said vengeance is yours. And I just want to thank you, Lord, for using me as a tool of your vengeance. <laughs> Let's go get another one, Lord. Thank you all very much. Dan Whitehurst. Oh, I love the stories. Now, did that really happen with the bat flying across your face and that whole thing? The bat story is half true. Okay. <laughs> you don't have to tell us which half is not, <laughs> but that was funny. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. But you are a comedian. You're supposed to be funny, but most of us don't think of cops as being funny. 
Were, were you funny before being a cop and then went into comedy? Or did all of this stuff of retiring from police work say, I'm going to do something really, really different? I, I always use comedy while a detective because it could humanize you. Yeah. Uh, during an interview with a suspect, if you could make him laugh, you had a much better chance of getting a confession because he's going to look at you as a human and not a police officer. Better than hitting him with a phone book exactly. or something like yeah, that? Exactly, yeah, that never worked. <laughs> <laughs> but I always thought, you know, but it, and it was a very tough crowd. Yeah. But it, I got to thinking, you know, sometimes I could pull it off, and I was like, I would love to see what I could do in front of happy people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's a, you get to make people laugh. Is there anything... The funniest thing that happened to you as a police officer that you incorporate into your shows? Yes. I had a lady very upset because uh, she called the dispatcher. She was so upset the dispatcher couldn't understand a word she was saying. But she mentioned money, so they sent me out there to talk to her. And while we're talking, she's totally hysterical. And I finally get her calmed down. I said, just tell me what happened. And she said, my boyfriend Bobby came over and we were watching TV and Bobby reached into his pocket and pulled out a roll of $200. And I asked him where he got it. And he said he stole it from some stupid girl. And we laughed. And we laughed. We laughed. And then, uh, and then Bobby left. And I looked in my purse. <laughs> my money was gone. Verbatim true. <laughs> I tell it, but I didn't write it. I lived it. That honestly happened. That honestly happened. <laughs> I mean, you can't make that stuff up. <laughs> no. Well, you got some great material, and uh, we're so happy to have you here, Dan. Thank you. Let me uh, say to our audience that if you want to enjoy more of this man's very funny comedy, if you want to see him in person, visit danwhitehurst.nashvillecomedy.com. Uh, it's on your screen, but I'm going to say it again. That's danwhitehurst.nashvillecomedy.com. Keith, how many times did this guy pull you over when he was a cop? I'm just curious. I'm sure. Well, I'd rather not say, but I didn't know him by his badge number. <laughs> Get Mike's take on Mitt Romney's return when we come back. The military pullout in Syria and why Americans are moving to red states in record numbers. Then, James Burton and Terry Blackwood talk Elvis Presley and salute him in performance. Stay tuned. Samaritan's Purse is doing some life-saving work in places too often forgotten. I hope you'll help them be the hands and the feet of the Lord by making a single phone call or maybe visiting the Samaritan's Purse website. You can feel good about the way that Samaritan's Purse uses your gift because they use it with care and with integrity. And the people that you help, well, they're going to feel good that you care. Thanks for opening your heart and for making a difference with Samaritan's Purse. Well, it's time to tackle top stories in the news and address them with some straight talk on our newest segment we call Facts of the Matter. Well, did you know that conservative states across America are getting new residents at a record pace? Well, you would if you dropped by MikeHuckabee.com for my daily news analysis. So here's the story. A new report from the Census Bureau shows that compared to the liberal blue states, red states are winning bigly among people who are voting with their feet and relocation. Over the past year, the biggest population losses were in the states of New York and Illinois, while the biggest gains were in Texas and Florida. As one former Illinois resident commented, quote, it's taxes, it's corruption, it's politics, end quote. And this is not a recent trend. Several years ago on my radio show, I started judging the popularity of California's far-left government by comparing the cost to rent a U-Haul truck from L.A. or San Francisco to Dallas or Houston, and then vice versa. Now, U-Haul provides a substantial discount to anyone who will drive one of its trucks from Texas to California, since there are so few customers willing to move in that direction. The current rate for a 15-foot truck for six days from L.A. to Dallas is nearly $2,000. Dallas to L.A., 910 bucks. Because you're doing U-Haul a favor by taking the truck back to California so someone else can get out of there. <laughs> now, of course, the downside of a blue state exodus is that people are moving to successful red states, and then they're voting for the same liberal politicians and policies that caused their last home state to fail. 
I second the longstanding proposal by Glenn Reynolds of Instapundit that red states should establish, well, let's call it a welcome wagon service for new arrivals to red states, explaining to them exactly why the former state they lived in stunk. And please don't vote to turn that into where you are now. And here's why the red state model works so well. A new study by the Competitive Enterprise Institute found that in President Trump's second year in office, the executive branch issued the second fewest government regulations in history. By the way, you know what year was the fewest new issued regulations? They were issued during President Trump's first year in office. Might have something to do with it. All right, let's take a look at what's on your mind in the news. Peggy from Fayetteville, North Carolina writes, President Trump's decision to remove our armed forces from Syria and Afghanistan seems like an invitation for ISIS and the Taliban to fill the void and wreak havoc over innocent people in both nations. Am I missing something? Peggy, you may not be. I'll be honest, I, I've had some concerns about the president's policy. I want to get out of all these places where we've been entrenched for so long. Uh, we've been in some of these places forever. And I agree with the president. My great concern is what happens to people like the Kurds and the Syrian Christians. I do know that when Lindsey Graham, who's been a strong, strong advocate uh, to remain active in some of these areas, met with the president, he came out and was much relieved that there was a method to the madness and that he felt like that this is not just a pullout that will leave the Kurds and Syrian Christians vulnerable and will leave a great opening for ISIS. I just want to say I'm cautiously optimistic. I hope the president is right. I'm not absolutely convinced he is, but I hope he is. And I hope Americans can put more focus on building America than building Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, and the other countries of the world. That I do hope for. We got this from Tim in Tacoma, Washington, who asked, why did returning Senator Mitt Romney trash President Trump this week? Even his RNC chairman, who is the, his niece, said that he ought to focus on the opposing party, not the president. Well, I totally agree with you. I don't know about why Mitt did this. Here's my uh, recollection. Mitt Romney was all too happy with President Trump when he was Donald Trump, the businessman, and wrote him a great big fat check to the Mitt Romney campaign in 2012. They shared a hug. Mitt was quick to take the check and the endorsement and was all smiles and happy. Then when... Then Donald Trump, the candidate, got the nomination. Mitt Romney went out and made a blistering speech attacking the Republican nominee, the same party that Mitt had been willing to take their support. And it was a brutal attack, and I couldn't figure out why would he do that. Then after Donald Trump became president-elect, Mitt Romney went to New Jersey and sat down where he all but begged to be the Secretary of State. Why, you would have thought they've been chums forever. And then... He didn't get that job, but he ran for Senate. And before he can even get sworn in, he's already trashing the president. And I'm thinking, we've had enough of guys like you. If you want to go to Washington and be a Republican, then for heaven's sakes, act like one. And if you're not, do the honorable thing and join the other party. Well, that's all the time we've got for now, but we're going to be back with more common sense and plain talk next time on Facts of the Matter. Okay, Keith, why don't you give us the hard facts on what's coming up next? I would love to. Remembering Elvis and celebrating him in song with James Burton and Harry Blackwood. It's all coming up on Huckabee. Welcome back. My next guest defined the sound of rock and roll while working with Elvis Presley, whose birthday would be this week. Terry Blackwood and his vocal group, the Imperials, gave rich, intricate harmonies to Elvis's soulful singing voice. And James Burton served as the king of rock and roll's guitar player, as well as the leader of the TCB band. TCB standing for taking care of business. Yeah. Elvis's trademark thought. I want you to welcome Terry Blackwood and James Burton. 
Thank you, Governor. Hey, I, I've been you. so excited. I cannot tell you to have you guys on the show. And James, one of the things that, that I know about you is that the great guitar players of the world, whether it's Eric Clapton or Keith Richards or, I mean, any of the great guitar players, if someone asked them, who's your role model? Who is it that you think is a great guitar player? Every one of them named James Burton. Wow. Yep. They do. I'm honored. They all yeah. do. <laughs> You've got to feel good about that. All right, let's talk Elvis. Uh, you got a call from Elvis Presley back, what, 1968, and he said, put a band together, we're going to go uh, put well, a show? He called me in 68 for the comeback special. I was not available for that. So he called me back in 1969 and uh, asked me if I'd put a band together. He got tired of doing movies, and uh, he wanted to go back and play to a live audience. And, uh, and I told him, I assured him, no problem. We'll put a band together. And... Uh, well, he became my rhythm guitar player, so that was great. <laughs> <laughs> but, was Elvis that person that we want him to be, kind of like that generous, kind, caring individual? Was that who he really was offstage? He was a very kind man, uh, caring, uh, very generous, and um, uh, just a wonderful, good Christian boy. Uh, and um, working with him, it was not like a boss. He was just uh, like a brother. Terry, why do you think he was so just magnetized by gospel music, of all the forms of music? It seemed that that genuinely was the one that he most gravitated to. As a matter of fact, when he was on his third visit to the Ed Sullivan Show, he had, uh, he had been told to uh, sing his latest hit. But before he left uh, Memphis, his mother said, Elvis, I wish you would... Uh, I wish you would sing a gospel song on this show. <laughs> so he got to New York and the producers had the, the hit song ready for him to, to rehearse with the band. He said, no guys, he said, I'm, I promised my mother I was gonna sing a gospel song and I'm going to. <laughs> so, so we did, uh, we did, what was the song? Uh, uh, Peace in the Valley. Peace, Peace in the Valley. Valley. Yeah. Peace in the Valley. And That's he actually did that on Ed Sullivan. He did that on the Ed Sullivan show. <clears throat> and save the relationship with his mother, which is yes. a smart thing to do, Elvis. Very smart thing Smart to thing do. to do. You know, I don't think people, if they're not guitar players, may not fully appreciate that the level of skill that you bring to the stage is truly legendary. And there are people who, you know, through the years have said, oh, there's some great guitar players, Chad Atkins and, and different ones, and they are, they're phenomenal. But you are that guy that uh, was the go-to guy. And when I think of all the different ways that your, your efforts have been made, one of the things that still amazed me, you were the guy that when Elvis was playing, he turned around and said, take it, James. And you're the James that he's saying, take it to. Yeah, right. That's right. I mean, you've got to watch that video sometimes and just say, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, he was a great guy. And uh, sometimes he would try to throw a little curve on us. Uh, one night, uh, he came over to me. Uh, we would all, he would introduce us, and we'd all have a little playoff uh -huh. thing. And, and then he came back. After I played, he came back, and he said, play the guitar behind your back. <laughs> so he wanted to do Johnny Be Good, and I put the guitar behind my back and played Johnny Be Good. You know, I think Elvis' death is sort of like the death of JFK or the Challenger Explosion. Everybody remembers where they were when they heard the news. Yeah. Where were you when you heard that Elvis had died? Because it was so... Much of a shock and unexpected. Well, the morning of August 16th, I flew to Las Vegas to pick up uh, the other band members, Joe Gershio and the singers. And uh, then we left Las Vegas to fly to Portland, Maine, the first show on August 16th. And um, so when we left Las Vegas, um, about maybe 45 minutes in the air, they called and said, return to Vegas. And I, I couldn't figure out. I thought maybe his dad was having uh, problems with his heart mm. and which he had heart problems and uh, why would Elvis cancel the tour? So anyway, when we, we stopped in Pueblo, Colorado to refuel and the, uh, the pilot, they wouldn't tell the pilot uh, what was mm. going on. So Marty Harold, a trombone player from Vegas, said, James, I'm gonna go make a phone call and see if I can find out what's going on. And he went and made a call and he came back. I was gonna go make a call and I met him halfway back and he, he had tears in his eyes and he put his arms around me and he said, Elvis passed away. Huh. I mean, shock, I said, it, is this a joke? He said, no, it's for real. So it was a long flight back to Vegas and I, 
I went back to my home in Burbank and got on the phone and got a flight to Memphis. Mm. And um, it wow. was a very sad day. Great loss for the entertainment world and, and really for Absolutely. all of us who loved his music. Yeah. Uh, just a delight to have you guys here. I'm, I'm going to say, um, I want you to step over with me to our performance stage because we're going to share a great Elvis Presley hit. And while we get ready, our erstwhile announcer, Keith Bilbrey, has some info he'll be sharing with our viewers. So, Keith, take it away. You can learn more about James Burton's music and amazing career at james-burton.net. That's james-burton.net. And find out where to see Terry Blackwood and get his great music at terryblackwood.com. For information on the Imperials, go to their website, imperialslive.com. Now, here to perform a song that Elvis made famous in 1970 are James Burton, Terry Blackwood, and the Imperials, and our own Mike Huckabee on bass guitar to perform The Wonder of You. Discover the music and performances of James Burton at james-burton.net and Terry Blackwood at terryblackwood.com. Check out their digital exclusive at huckabee.tv. Now, don't you move. We'll be back with an encore performance in just 60 seconds on Huckabee. Our thanks to Lila Rose, Chris Hogan, Dan Whitehurst, and Mr. James Burton, as well as Terry Blackwood. Now, before they take us home, I want you to be sure to go to Huckabee.tv and see a digital exclusive of them performing Johnny B. Good. You do not want to miss it, because I was in it. <laughs> That's Huckabee.tv, but don't check that out until you enjoy this. All right, gentlemen, take it away.
very soon it's coming the day when we'll all be careful. 